0: Well, we're uh, continuing in our study in the book of Hebrews, so keep your Bibles open if you have a Bible there in Hebrews 6. These verses are uh, intended by God, the ultimate author of the Bible, to encourage you this morning to trust in the promises he's made to you. There's a lot of swearing in this text, not that kind of swearing, not profane swearing, oath-taking Swearing, promise making, and and promise keeping, we still take oaths in our culture today. Uh, when the president of the United States is inaugurated, he puts his hand on the Bible and takes the oath of office. Right, he he confirms in that oath his promise to uphold the Constitution of the United States, by swearing on something greater than himself, in this case, the God of the Bible. We also see it every day in our culture in courtrooms. People come under oath, don't they, to, to testify. They, they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Their oath emphasizes that they're putting themselves under a higher authority, the, the authority of the law of the land, to bind their words. And even more down to oath, we will sometimes swear by all kinds of things to assure the person we're speaking to that we mean what we say. There's all kinds of colloquialisms that make that impression. I swear on all that is holy. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on the lives of my children. These are these are oaths. The, and the purpose of oaths is to confirm the validity of what we say. The, the great message of this part of Hebrews is that God has come under oath. God has made promises to you and to me, and and he has sworn to keep them. He's sworn to keep them. And because that's true, we can have patient faith in his promises. We're we're ending um, a bit of a detour in the flow of the book of Hebrews this morning. If you'll look back at chapter 5, verse 10, you'll see there that the author wrote that Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then at the end of what Rick read, chapter 6, verse 20, we read the same thing. Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And beginning next week, as we start chapter 7, the author is going to explain what that means in, in great detail. But from chapter 5, verse 11 through the end of chapter 6, uh, he's taken us on a detour away from the main idea of the letter, which we've seen again and again is Jesus is better. You know, it's like when you're traveling on a, on a state highway in Texas and, you know, you're just plugging right along at 70, 75, 80, 85 miles an hour and you come through one of those small texas towns and you you have to slow down and there might even be a couple of stoplights and and then sometimes there's road work or construction happening and there's a detour and you find yourself making your way through some old small town texas neighborhood and then you you get through the town and you rev it back up and go again that's kind of what hebrews has been doing with us we've been on a detour warning us to not fall away Warning us to hold fast to the promises god 's make God makes warning us not to give up. We saw that last week in the first part of chapter six, and then this section of Chapter six is kind of like an on ramp back onto the main highway of the letter it 's set up to to encourage us to encourage us to fight for faithfulness in our lives. And and so the author's issued a warning last week and now he calls us to move forward with faith and patience. Look at what verse 12 of chapter 6 says again. He asks us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's what God wants for you this morning. God wants for your life to be characterized by faith and patience. The Christian life is a journey that begins with faith and that goes on with patience. Faith receives and rests upon the promises of God that find their fulfillment in Jesus, and patience overcomes obstacles and continues to believe and waits as long as it takes to enter into the joy of the things promised. So, As we approach this text, let's just remember, a a lot of us, I know a lot of us need encouragement this morning. Um, This life is just difficult, isn't it? Life is hard. Life is challenging. Some of us are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Some of us are isolated and sort of coming out of the gloom of the life that COVID has placed upon all of us and, and trying to sort of figure out where we are now, right? Some of us have, have just been dwelling on bad news that we might have gotten recently that can't get out of our minds. Some of us have, have fallen off the wagon of sobriety again. No matter what's going on in our lives, God this morning wants to encourage us. He wants us to hold on to the faith with patience He wants us to hear that he's going to keep the promises he's made. And and, and so this morning, he, he gives us three encouragements in these verses in Hebrews to help us continue with faith and with patience. So I want to just study those with you for the next couple of minutes. Okay, let's look at three encouragements. The first encouragement we see in these verses is that God is the promise maker. God is the promise maker. He jumps off from verse 12 of chapter 6 and uses as an example of faith and patience this guy Abraham. Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, he swore by himself and on and on and on. It's as if he's saying, okay, speaking of believing promises, you should all remember what Abraham did and you should imitate him. You should be like Abraham. Abraham is the quintessential man of faith. And so to understand what verses 13, 14, and 15 are about, we need to just back up for a moment, go and reverse in our biblical history, and remember the life of Abraham. Abraham's life is in the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12... God appears to him out of nowhere because of his sovereign, electing, and gracious purposes. And in Genesis twelve, two and 3, he makes these crazy, radical promises to Abraham. Listen to what God says to him. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." And then God says to Abraham, go, go to a land that I will show you. He doesn't give him a map. He has no GPS signal. He's not even given a hint of where he's going. But Abraham takes up everything that he has, which would have been no small thing in that day, and goes after what God has told him to do. He believes God and he goes. There's some issues, though, with the promise that God has made to Abraham to make him this great nation. Issue one, Abraham has no kids. And he's 75-ish years old at the time in which God makes this promise. If you read through Genesis, it's really pretty funny. Almost every time Abraham or Sarah, his wife, are mentioned, the author wants to emphasize that they're old. He'll say, and Abraham was about 90 years old, being of old age, being much advanced in years. And we're like, okay, God, we get it. Abraham's old. He was very old, way too old to have children. And so when God, a few chapters later, reaffirms the promise he made to Abraham to make him a great nation, in Genesis 15, Abraham says, God, how is this possible? My only heir right now is this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, who's one of my household servants. And then God says again, look up at the heaven, at the heavens, and number the stars, if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And again, Abraham believes God. Then when Abraham's 99, very advanced in years, and when Sarah, his wife, is 90, and this is 25 or so years after the initial promise has been given to them by God, God confirms his covenant with Abraham again and and promises him a son. Remember Sarah, what does Sarah do at this point? Anybody remember? Remember? Give me a break. She laughs. Great story, by the way. Genesis 20, 21-ish. But God continues to make these promises, and Abraham continues to believe. And then finally, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 21, is born. Years after the first time God made the promise. Abraham, has he's had his ups and he's had his downs, for sure. He's made some big mistakes. He, but, but he's patiently waited in faith for God to do what he said he would do and God made good on his promises. One more thing about Abraham. The author in Hebrews six fourteen quotes from Abraham's story, but the chapter he quotes is Genesis chapter 22, which is after Isaac has been born. You remember, this is the climactic moment of Abraham's life. He's gotten his son finally, and Isaac is growing up He's the heir. He's the one through whom the promises will begin to be fulfilled. And then God says, hey, Abraham, do you love the promise I've made to you more than you love me? Do you love the promise I've made to you more than you love me? Let's see. Take Isaac and kill him. Sacrifice him to me. By this time, Isaac is old enough to know in part at least what's going on. But, but he and his dad, they journey up Mount Mount Moriah. And his dad places Isaac on the altar, and with tears in his eyes, he lifts up the knife to obey God, to obey this insane command, this completely crazy command to gut his own son. The son that he's waited for for so long, the son that God himself promised his 99-year-old body. And, and right when he's about to come down, God says, Abraham, stop. Stop. And then God says what is quoted in Hebrews 6. By myself I have sworn, Abraham, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham, the author of Hebrews wants us to see, trusted God. He patiently believed, even when it seemed completely nuts to him. And God always kept his word. God always kept his promise to Abraham. Abraham as the quintessential man of faith does not mean that Abraham was sinless. It does not mean that Abraham was perfectly righteous, but it does mean that through all the ups and downs of life, Abraham relied on God's word. And that's what That's what the author of Hebrews is reminding us of today. That's what God is reminding us of through this letter. Just like Abraham, you and I can trust God patiently over the long haul. We can trust God patiently over the long haul. It is worth it to trust God. The Holy Spirit asks us through this text... Where in our lives, where in our lives are we being asked by God to patiently trust him? In your life right now, where is God pressing on you and asking you to trust? One way to answer that question is to ask another question. Where in my life does the promise of God not seem to add up? What in my life seems disjointed from the blessings that God promises? Those are the places. Those are the places where patient faith is best refined. I know that uh, many of us are, are experiencing that right now. You're on the way up Mount Moriah proverbially speaking, like Abraham and Isaac were thinking the path God has me on is insane. It's painful. It doesn't line up with what he's told me at all. Maybe you've had a terrible prognosis on your health. Maybe you've lost a super close friendship. Maybe you've worked for restoration in your marriage and it's just not happening. Why? We ask, where is God in all of this? Doesn't he promise me good? It's just in those places, and it's just in those moments where patient faith is most significant, the text is saying. God is encouraging you here, if you find yourself in that place today, to know that he knows what you're walking in, and to continue to trust him. It's the first bit of encouragement. God's the promise maker. He's going to keep the promises he makes to you, no matter how it feels to you right now. The second bit of encouragement, God is the oath taker. God is the oath taker. Here's what's happening. Because God knows that it's very hard for us to trust him sometimes, especially when we're in those Mount Moriah with Isaac and Abraham moments, we see him do something else in this passage. He swears an oath, as we talked about at the beginning. Look at verse 14, a quote from Genesis 22. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And then verse 16 and 17 explain this. Look at what we read there. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promises, he guaranteed it with an oath. So, here's what's happening. God can be counted on. God can be fully trusted because his word and his promise are sure and And unchanging. When God says he will do something, he will for sure do it. But, but, because he knows we will struggle to patiently believe that that's the case. He gives us an oath to guarantee his word. That's what it means when the text says that God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his promise. So God doesn't take an oath to remind him He takes an oath to remind us the very act of his oath taking is, as theologians would say, a gracious condescension on the part of God. We swear by things, as I talked about at the outset, because human beings, shocker, you ready? Human beings can lie. I know. Can you believe that? It's possible for human beings to deceive one another. Humans can mislead one another. And so swearing, oath-taking, is intended to confirm and to reassure. Just an example. This week, maybe, I think it was this week, uh, my kids were getting ready for dinner one evening, and we're talking about how high different kids in Nate's grade can jump. And apparently there's one seventh-grade kid that can now touch the rim, which I was surprised by. And so I just said, you know, I used to be able to hang on the rim. And... Can you believe this? My wife was skeptical that that was true. She said, whatever. I said, I swear. I swear I used to be able to hang on the rim. And I didn't offer to go try now. Because that emphasis on the word used to. Used to be able to hang on a 10-foot rim. I could never dunk. Not even a girl's ball, but I could hang on the rim. And um, I just kind of in passing said, I swear. Uh, Another example. One of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. You've seen the movie, right? Remember the scene where Inigo Montoya and Fezek and the Sicilian have kidnapped Princess Buttercup. And they're rushing across the sea and they see this man, this man in black, following them. It's the Dread Pirate Roberts, also known as, spoiler alert, Wesley, right? Sorry, if if I ruin the Princess Bride, we've got bigger issues to deal with. Okay. So Wesley's chasing them across. They begin to climb up the mountain. Phezzik's pulling them all the way up this rope, up this steep, sheer cliff. And Wesley begins to follow them. They get to the top first and they cut the rope. And the rope falls. And you think, surely Wesley's plummeted to his death. But no, he's managed to hang on to the sides of this rock and he's climbing slowly. And so the Sicilian, being the leader of the bunch, says, hey, Inigo, you're a master swordsman. We're going to take off with the princess. You wait here and dispatch this stranger as soon as he gets to the top. And so Anigo says, sure thing. And so Anigo's hanging out, waiting for Wesley to climb to the top. Remember? He doesn't have a rope. And so Anigo leans over and sees him and says, could you hurry it up? And he says, this is not as easy as it looks. If you want to help, you could throw me a rope. And he says, you know, I'm, I promise I'm not going to kill you when you I'll, I'll let you I'll let you get ready before I kill you. And uh, he's like, no, thanks. I'll keep climbing on my own. And Anigo says, I give you my word as a Spaniard. And Wesley says, I've known way too many Spaniards. Sorry to you, Spaniards. And, and then Anigo like gets really serious and he stares at him and he says, I swear on the life of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive." And Wesley says, throw me the rope. He throws in the rope, climbs to the top, and an ego makes good on his promise. He took an oath. He swore on something that was clearly serious to him. And it caused Wesley in that moment, at least, to trust him. We'll finish the story of the princess bride at another time. Back to Hebrews. Okay? The point is, that's what God is doing here. But a problem arises for God. The problem is this. When you swear by something, you tend to swear by something greater than yourself, by someone greater than yourself. But for God, there's nothing greater for him to swear by than himself. Verse 13, God can't say, I swear by the moon and the stars because he's like, oh, yeah, I made those. I swear by all this. Oh, yeah, I made those too. Well, I guess I'll just swear by myself. I swear on my name as God. It's as if God is saying, if I don't do what I've promised, may I not be God anymore. If I don't do what I promise, you can defame my godness. It's that significant. So God promises to Abraham and to us to to save us out of our rebellion against him. He promises to bring us into His own perfect and eternal life, the life of Father, Son, and Spirit. He promises to never, ever stop loving us and delighting in us. He promises to abundantly pour out His affections on us forever. And He guarantees the veracity of these promises with an oath. Why? Why does God do it? Look at verse 18. So that... By two unchangeable things. Now the two unchangeable things are his promise and his oath. In which it is impossible for God to lie. Why does God swear on his own name? So that we who have fled for refuge. Might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God's promise and God's oath. The two unchangeable things are an encouragement for us to flee to run to him for refuge. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. You might have seen some of the pictures I saw this week of people fleeing out of Ukraine. I saw a picture this week in the Atlantic that was in black and white. And it was a picture of a, a train station where the train stopped and the the train station waiting deck was absolutely packed to the brim people shoulder to shoulder and frankly it looked like something out of 1941 something out of world war 2 all those people were fleeing fleeing for refuge fleeing for their lives It's the image that the author of Hebrews paints for you and for me because there's nothing that God desires more for you this morning than to flee to him for refuge. There's nothing God wants more for you than to flee to him for refuge. What is it to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean you grew up in the Western world with Christian morality canopying over you? No. Does it mean that you were baptized? No. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means you have fled to him for refuge. It means you have fled to him for refuge. What in your life is making you want to flee? This week, I had a couple of nights where I just couldn't go to sleep. I'd wake up, this happens to me from time to time, and I couldn't go back to sleep. I bet you've had nights like this in your lives. I couldn't go back to sleep because my, the wheels in my brain started cranking and spinning. And the deep concerns and, and worries in my heart. The, the things in my life that are most troubling just started plaguing me mentally and, and spiritually and, and emotionally. And, and you know what, friends? When I feel that way and you, when you feel that way, those are the moments... When God, by His Spirit, says to us, Flee to me for refuge. Hold fast to the promises I've made and to the promises I've kept patiently by faith. Run to me. Flee to me. What a gift. What a gift that we can run to the strong tower that is our God and bank on the certainty of His love. God's a promise. Maker. God is an oath taker. Last bit of encouragement. God is the anchor. God is the anchor. Uh, we can hold fast, the author says, to the hope set before us, verse 18. And then he uses that idea to, to, to springboard us back to the main theme of the letter, the superiority of Jesus. Specifically, the superiority of Jesus as our high priest. And then in verses 19 and 20, uh, in a sense, he personifies for us the hope that we're to cling to. Look there again with me. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope, now notice here how he shifts, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking in the first breath about hope as an anchor for the soul, and then in the second breath about hope as someone who has done something for us. Uh, He makes it clear in verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of the promises God made to Abraham, All of the promises that God makes to us as the children of Abraham in faith have their fulfillment. They have their yes and their amen. They have their positive answer in the greatest son of Abraham, Jesus of Nazareth. Through Jesus, the peoples of the earth from every tribe and tongue are blessed forever, as God said to Abraham. Through Jesus, God keeps his promise to be our God and make us his people. This happens because, as the author writes, Jesus has entered into the inner place behind the curtain as a forerunner for us. Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, offered himself up as the final sacrifice for sin, which is why he's our great high priest. He's both our great high priest, and he's also the great high priest's sacrifice. The the inner place there... That word is is a reference to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. It's the place where the high priest of Israel would enter, but only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for the sins of the people. But Hebrews is telling us that in the cross, Jesus, as our final high priest, once for all, offers himself up as the sacrifice. He gives Himself over to His Father. He makes expiation for our sins, as the Scriptures say. He's the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who cleanses forever all who take refuge in Him. And our anchor is there. Our anchor is there in the finished, once-for-all work of Jesus, in His sacrificial death for our sin. An anchor, of course, is a, a heavy piece of steel used by sailors to ensure that their vessel stays in place when winds and and waves come and crash. And and it's interesting to consider the imagery of an anchor. Think about an anchor in your minds with me. A sailor casts an anchor into the depths of the ocean, right, And, and trusts. That the anchor will sink to the bottom and lodge itself into the sands of the seafloor and affix the ship to that spot. The anchor is hidden. The anchor is invisible, but the sailors are secure. Even though they can't see how the arms of the anchor are held. It's the same for us now, Hebrews says. When we face the winds and the waves of the world, we can trust that our anchor is fixed. But we don't send our anchor down. We send our anchor up. We send our anchor up, not down into the sands of the ocean, but up into the very inner place of God's own temple, where Jesus has already entered. And we're anchored there in the heavenlies by the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross, fixing us, to the promises of God, to save and to secure us forever, out of death and out of sickness and out of sorrow and out of hell, we're anchored in the hope of glory, as Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians. In the city of Rome, uh, you can still visit what's called the Catacomb of Pris- Catacomb, Excuse Me, Catacomb of Priscilla. This is a uh, second-century burial site where many uh, martyred Christians from the reign of Domitian uh, are buried. And the catacomb is an archaeological treasure for many reasons, but one of the reasons that it's an archaeological treasure is because it's filled with ancient Christian imagery. There are engravings all over the tombs. There are engravings of Jesus... The good shepherd feeding sheep. There are engravings of the ichthus, the fish, which was an ancient symbol of the followers of Jesus. And they're symbols of an anchor. I've, I've actually got one. Michaela, can you put that picture up? This is an engraving on a tomb in the catacombs of Priscilla. The anchor is engraved there to remind all of us that those who have died in Christ... And that those who live in Christ are anchored to the solid rock that is Jesus. And have indeed inherited the promises by faith. He is our sure and steady anchor. He encourages you to trust him. He will not let you go. The anchor has been fixed in the heavenlies for you. Let's pray.